For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC. G'day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia. I'm Will Kingston. It's that time of year when many of us will sit down and write. It could be resolutions. It could be reflections. It could be that book that everyone has inside them. Although I'd note Christopher Hitchens' addendum, which is exactly where it should, I think, in most cases, remain. When I sit down to write, I have this romantic ideal in my head. Hemingway sitting in a Parisian cafe as the words flow out of him, or Jane Austen scribbling by a lake. Then the same realisation hits me that no doubt hit those great figures. It's bloody hard. I want to crack the code of writing. Fortunately, my guest today will be of some help. Jeffrey Diva has sold over 50 million novels in 25 languages, won numerous awards, and counts Ian Rankin, Harlan Coben, and Lee Child among his multitude of fans. His latest novel, Watchmaker's Hand, 16th edition to the incredibly popular Lincoln Rhymes series, has just been released. Jeffrey Deva, welcome to Australiana. Well, thank you, Will. Good to talk to you. I'm conscious that your mother was an artist and your father was a copywriter, which sounds to me like potentially the perfect combination to create a great author. How do you reflect on the influence of your parents? Well, my sister, who's a young adult author, Julie Restiever, and I grew up in a household where uh, creativity was valued. Uh, uh, to some extent, sadly, sports was not. I was a, a nerd when I was growing up, but I was a nerd in the, you know, the real sense. Back then, no talent for sports. I was pudgy, clumsy, and somewhat inept. Now, of course, if you're a nerd, you've got a, you've created an artificial intelligence app for dancing cats and are a billionaire. But sadly, I was uh, the, the traditional inept nerd. But, but what that meant was I was drawn to books and to writing. And my parents had a, a curious rule in our household. My sister and I could read any book we could find in the house. Indeed, any book in the library, school library or public library, because reading was valued. There were some movies, however, we were not allowed to see, which was ironic because in the 1950s, uh, in early 60s, when we were growing up, I was born in 1950, there were no bad movies. I mean, as much as I, as a schoolboy and my mates wanted to find some, there were none. You know, there, it was passed in, in America. We had something called the Hayes Code, and that H-A-Y-E-S, and that was a, um, a kind of a self-censorship organization. It wasn't part of the government as such, uh, I believe. But everything was quite tame. 
but books were, you know, Aeneas Nien was writing, Henry Miller was writing, you know, it was, it was a pornography. No, of course not, but it was certainly risque. We could read that if we chose to, but who wanted that? I mean, men and women kissing. Oh, how awful was that? I wanted car chases. I wanted gunplay. And, and I wanted to read uh, fantasy, uh, Lord of the Rings, for instance, or uh, Ray Bradbury science fiction, Ian Fleming, John D. MacDonald, creative Travis McGee. So I read and read and read, and my parents uh, encouraged that. And I, I guess they say apples don't fall far, and I, I'm, my sister and I are examples of that. You said that creativity was valued in your household. Is creativity innate, or can it be cultivated and learned? It can absolutely be cultivated and learned, but there are some qualities that are innate to the skill of writing, and I consider it a craft. I mean, I don't know what art is, you know. I, I look at Rembrandt, Mozart, and, uh, uh, you know, Beethoven. These were, well, we consider Shakespeare. We consider them artists now, but they were craftspeople who were worked on commission for pay. They delivered their, dare I say, consumer product on schedule, uh, and within budget, I assume, I, I never saw any bills that Rembrandt submitted, but I assume he uh, was paid by his patron, uh, you know, a reasonable amount. Is that art? Well, I guess it is maybe, but, you know, that, that changes, that's a moving moving target. So um, creativity is something that is, there's a kernel there, but it has to be expanded upon. And I, when I teach my course in writing, I tell my students, you need certain things to begin with. You need an innate curiosity. You need a command. I'm speaking of writing now. I can't speak to art. I was a musician a while ago, but I was not a really natural born musician. I was a good songwriter, natural born songwriter, but not a natural born musician. But you need a curiosity. You need an, uh, somewhat of an innate skill in your medium, whether that's you know crafting words or whatever. And uh, I think you need an empathy for two things, an empathy for the subjects you're writing about and an empathy for your audience. And I'll, I don't want to digress too much, but let me explain a little bit about what I mean. Empathy for your subject matter. I'm kind of a meat and potatoes pedestrian writer. I'm not a Cormac McCarthy, uh, you know, a great stylist, a Jane Smiley, an Annie Prue stylist. Words come kind of hard to me. I put them together well but it's kind of functional writing. But I was born with a, a sense of empathy. I can step into other people's shoes very easily. It's not hard at all for me to imagine what it's like, and I'm going to just run through some of my characters in the 45 or 50 books I've written. I've been a 16-year-old black girl living in Harlem. I've been an, uh, a, uh, an East Asian snakehead, a, a human trafficker. I've been a cartel boss. I've been a quadriplegic. I've been men, women of all ages. I've, I've been good and bad. And with some research, you know, this, I, I don't, I didn't come, I was not born fully formed as a, a Mexican drug cartel uh, a gun runner, but I learned that and I, I could pretty easily step into his or her shoes. Now, that's the empathy that I was born with. I'm not saying that can't be learned, but um, I just have that facility. And, you know, maybe it's a, a certain sensitivity I have. I was just talking to my agent the other day and she said, Jeff, you know, you're too nice. Uh, we're negotiating a, a deal in Hollywood right now about which I'm afraid I can't say too much, but it's the negotiations are going back and forth. And I said, well, uh, to my agent, well, uh, oh, don't worry about that. It's, it's okay. You know, if they make the movie, 
And she said, Jeff, no, <laughs> you don't understand. You, you can't have that attitude because they'll run right over you. And I say, well, that's why, what I have you for. And she said, that's right. Uh, and part of that fairly affability, that fair affability, I think, is goes hand in glove with this empathy to present characters that are real, living and breathing. And your characters have to be real. My definition of what I do is this. I create, and I tell my students, you create uh, the most emotionally engaging story you can. That's your mission on earth. And what is an emotionally engaging story? It's actually quite simple. It's a, um, a work of fiction in which living, breathing characters, good and bad, fully formed, uh, fully fleshed out, uh, confront increasingly difficult conflicts and questions throughout the book or short story, which conflicts and questions are ultimately resolved to the reader's satisfaction, not happily. You know, the ending doesn't have to be happy. I tend to write happy endings. Good prevails. You certainly don't have to do that, but it has to be satisfying to the reader. And that experience that I've just described only works if you have characters that are rich, that are fully formed, that are people that we know. And I, um, I work very hard to do that. You know, there are caricatures of, uh, let's say, villains, uh, the drug company boss, the banker. And if you're lower in the food chain of bad guys, the henchmen, I don't know if this is going out visually or not, but people would see my hairline, which isn't much of a hairline, and a ponytail and put me in a black leather jacket and I'm a bad guy. No backstory. You know, there's, I'm talking about movies now and generally bad movies. No backstory to that character. No backstory to the drug, uh, the drug czar, uh, uh, the pharma czar. Well, we don't care anything about those people. Uh, you have to fill out, you have to flesh out all your characters. So that's the one side of the empathy equation that is so necessary for writing uh, books that relate to dot, dot, dot. The second part of the empathy equation, the readers. This is all about the readers. I've heard some authors say, um, I don't care about the readers. I have a vision and I, uh, uh, you know, I write it and out it goes. And if they get it, that's that's good. If they don't, that's their problem, not mine. Well, I don't believe in that. You know, there are authors that I find difficult to read. I mean, like David Foster Wallace, you know, brilliant writer. I've tried um, Infinite Jest a few times. And I, to be honest, I'm admitting this in public now, I haven't been able to get through it. Now, David Foster Wallace is someone who has, uh, someone who had, sadly, is not with us any longer, you know, like, uh, let's say James Joyce with his more uh, more complex works, he had a vision and he wrote for a very specific audience, but that was his market. You know, I, I analogize what I do to making toothpaste and I make, you know, mint flavored toothpaste. And you may have read that that's an analogy I use in my presentation on writing. And there are people who make, uh, who create books that are, we have a company in America called Tom's and it's a, a baking soda based toothpaste that I don't particularly enjoy. It's supposed to be quite good for your teeth. I kind of prefer mint or cinnamon to the stuff that may be better for you. Now, Tom's has a very devout audience. It's a very small audience. And the people who do Tom's, if there is a Tom, I suspect there is, Tom looked at that audience and said, you know, I don't need a broad audience. I, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make my toothpaste, i.e. write my books for a very small audience. That just isn't me. And that's not what I want to do. I want to entertain as many people as I possibly can. 
And uh, so that means mint toothpaste, and that means writing a book that I think will um, create empathy between me as, as the author and my book and the audience. I want people of all uh, demographics, all uh, uh, gender orientations, all nationalities, ethnicities uh, to enjoy my uh, enjoy my writing. It's you know, was uh, you mentioned Chris Hitchens, one of my absolute favorites, and he and I have about the same view of religion. So I can't say I was put on earth by any great deity, but whatever got me here, I think my mission is to. Um, you know, write for uh, as many people as I can, give them a, uh, you know, an, an enjoyable roller coaster of a ride. And then at the uh, end of the day, they close the book and smile and then look forward to my next one. To use business jargon, that customer-led approach that you're so open about is fascinating. I don't think I've heard another author be so open about that. And we will get there. Before we do, I'm keen to explore that mission statement that you you mentioned earlier. I actually had it in front of me on my laptop and I was following the words as you uh, as you said it and you, you said it almost word for word. This is obviously deeply ingrained. My lesson plan or something on your uh, computer there. <clears throat> That's right. My, my understanding is it is the only paragraph that you ask your students to write out. I'm interested in that piece around facilitating emotional engagement with readers. Now you've said that you know, you don't necessarily need to be an evil person to write evil characters. You do it via research. Talk me through that process. How do you go about understanding a Mexican cartel boss or, you know, a 16 year old girl in Harlem or any number of characters? What's that look like? Sure. And just as a, a bit of an aside, I mean, your listeners are going to think, well, I'm never going to read his books. He digresses so much. I don't digress in the books. They're quite focused. When I chat with a, you know, a, a fun, uh, in a fun interview like this, I do kind of my mind to just jump around a bit. But the, um, we have a, um, a situation that has occurred in America. And, I, I, you know, it's a global, global life now. So I'm sure this is true, probably in Australia as well, that it has become somewhat suspect for people to write about characters of other ethnicities, genders, nationalities, and so forth, race, races, and the, 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 the concept of the umbrella, the penumbra of appropriation occurs. And, you know, I, I don't, I have a lot of trouble with that. I, I feel that an author, and I, I, now I'm not talking about other forms of art, the plastic arts or movies or anything. I'm just speaking of, of books. An author can write about anything he or she wants to. You've got a vision and, uh, you know, you've heard my vision. That's what I like. Other people have other visions. That's fine. But if you you have a vision that may involve other characters of, and, and situations of other, let's say, other ethnicities, oh, hell yes, you can, you can write it. But you do your homework because it has to be true, it has to be honest. I mean, if I wrote every book, again, if this is broadcast, people will know. I'm a 73-year-old white bald man from a, a middle-class background. If I wrote every book featuring characters like that, I would be failing my, my quote, mission. So um, you can write everything you want. Now, yes, you can appropriate inappropriately, but it's, it's about you know, creative integrity. That's the ultimate goal. And if, you're, if you do your homework, if you study Mexican cartels or uh, South Asian culture, as I did in a book of mine, a Lincoln Ryan book called Cutting Edge, I had a uh, some characters from uh, New Delhi, one from Kashmir. And I was very, very diligent to study that very 
very carefully. And I, I occasionally I'll speak to people of that uh, from a, a different culture if I feel it's it's kind of it's tough. I'm having a little difficulty understanding it. And if I have too much difficulty, I abandon that that character because it would not be honest. So do your homework. I mean, Wikipedia is great for a starting point. In America, I'm sure you follow our politics almost as much as we do. I apologize for that. We hear the phrase fake news and you as a journalist probably makes your palms sweat. I was a former, I'm a former journalist. It makes my palms sweat too because the folks who are pointing to the fake news are in fact pointing to the, uh, what I would call the true news, our um, traditional media, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, Washington Post, Atlanta Constitution Journal, uh, ABC, NBC, uh, CBS, uh, you, you know, you're, you have your own ABCs, same thing, BBC in England. These, these are <clears throat> journalistic outfits that do their homework. They get multiple attribution. They don't publish a story unless they're convinced that it's accurate, with, with some exceptions, of course. Well, we're the same way. We should be the same way. Wikipedia is a Google a starting point, jumping off point, and you go from there and make sure your sources are uh, verified, your portrayals of the characters are accurate. And um, then you um, sit down in your, your dark room, which is what I do. I, I close my eyes. Well, if I'm in a dark room, I don't need to close my eyes. Either I close my eyes in a light room or I, uh, I, I can open my eyes. That's optional in a dark room and uh, picture myself as that character. And I, uh, I, I write, and then I, you know, we'll probably talk about craft in a, in a bit, but I write, I write very quickly, but then I rewrite, rewrite, and rewrite. So it's that going into a, a different space and, and that uh, to be that character and, you know, the good guys too, the heroic cops, you know, the, uh, the brain surgeon who is appearing in my book, and she has a very, very risky procedure to make at the same time that there's a, a terrorist attack in the hospital. Well, what does she do? Does she carry on? What would I, as that surgeon, do in a situation like that? And I, I kind of picture that and see it. Now, you hear sometimes, and I get this question quite a bit, how, how do you dwell with the demons? I'm being a little dramatic there, but you write about bad, bad stuff. And um, well, yeah, I, I write crime books, you know, serial killers, terrorists, nefarious actors. But you know what? It, oh, I should add. Then they say, "How do you live with yourself that night?" I mean, are you after you finish writing those scenes? Are you traumatized for days? And I say, "Well, the analogy is this: picture the pilot of an airplane, and he or she is flying along, and look up ahead, terrible thunderstorm, lightning, thunder, turbulence, and they yawn and say, oh, thunderstorm, okay.' And they hit the seatbelt sign, and then they go on flying." And maybe they take the, the yoke because it's a little bumpier than normal, or they just watch, read one of my books, ideally, as pilots say they do, and an autopilot. They get through the thunderstorm. Through the, on the other side of the thunderstorm is there's a beautiful sunset. And they look at the sunset and say, yeah, okay. And they go back to reading one of my books or, you know, punching the little video game things they have in the cockpit there. Well, why? Because their job is not to get emotional themselves. Their job is to remain calm so that the audience, that is the the, the passengers have what is their most engaging experience getting from point A to point B safely. And um, so I, I have very little investment. I have no favorite characters. I'm very reticent to kill a character. I'll never kill a main character. Colter Shaw, my character that'll be in this new, uh, from the Never Game, he'll be in the uh, CBS 
uh, show Tracker coming up next year. Lincoln Rhyme, who's been in the movies and, you know, is the 16th book, I guess, The Watchmaker's Hand. I'll never kill them. What, you know, what, what would be the point? You know, people like them. Why would I disappoint readers? Now, I may create the, you know, the fifth crewman of the Starship Enterprise. That's, you know, we've got our, our core of stars and uh, who go down to the planet and there's a fifth crewman that goes with them and he's an attractive guy or an attractive woman. And, you know, they weren't on last week's show. And we have a feeling they're not going to be on next week's show because the creators, now you've got somebody to, now you've got a target, somebody that you might or might not kill off. So I'll, I'll create characters like that. But I'm not going to uh, mess with my uh, my uh, readers in, in, in a way that would, you know, give them that kind of, uh, that kind of harm. But I, I, aside from, from, you know, killing folks like that or endangering them in some way or another, I, I have no emotional engagement at all in the, the characters and the story. My emotional engagement, and I'm sorry, it is an intense emotional engagement. After 100 short stories and 50 books, I still wake up, as I did this morning, in, in uh, I'm on book tour, so the time zones are a little messed up, but I got up at 3.30 this morning kind of semi-panicked about a plot point in my new book I was working on, something I was thinking about last night. And um, I fell asleep uh, thinking about it, woke up this morning thinking about it. <clears throat> I've got a solution. I think it will work. But, you know, that still bothers me. Every day it bothers me that I'm going to somehow fail. So long way of saying that, do I dwell with the demons? No. Oh, no. You know, five o'clock, it's time for a beer. I put it aside. I'm the pilot that lands. Passengers get off. My characters do what they're going to do. And, uh, you know, when I uh, next morning I get on the flight again and I'll, uh, you know, be very focused on making sure the passengers, i.e. my readers, have a, a safe and enjoyable trip. It's intriguing hearing you explain your formula like this. There is a real pragmatism to it. You know, in some respects, it is detached from from the characters themselves, which almost is counterintuitive or it goes against kind of the ways a lot of authors or creative types speak about their art or their, their craft. Does that attitude that you have lead to resentment or a level of snobbery from some more purist style authors? It does to some extent, but <clears throat> um, I'll, I'll tell you some practical matter. I have, the world is divided into two uh, categories of writers, pantsers and plotters. Pantser refers to seat of the pants. That is, they would sit down with a blank screen or blank sheet of paper and start writing. The plotters outline. And I outline extensively before I write a single word of the prose. And we can chat about that in a bit if you want. But just as in response to your, your question, I'll spend eight months doing the outline before I write a single word of the prose. Well, somebody would say, well, that's, that's not, I'll use the word art again. That's not creativity. Well, I'm sorry, but was it Michelangelo or da Vinci's when they were conceiving of a sculpture, basically planned it out by hundreds of sketches first and didn't touch a single bit of marble until the, the sketches were done. In fact, the sketches were sometimes as good as the, as good as the final sculpture. Well, I'll, I'll use another analogy, the, um, uh, the airplane. You know, I'm not getting on an airplane that has not been built according to engineering diagrams and schematics. You know, those blueprint things, they're done for a reason. And uh, I, I suspect even those, uh, um, I will not say that all people who are pantsers are snobs. Heavens no. There's nothing more subjective than writing. And if it works for you, it writes. Some of the authors you mentioned, Lee Child, Michael Connolly, George R. R. Martin, they don't outline. However, they have the sort of mind, I'm convinced, 
that doesn't outline in their head prior to their writing. They know where the story is going to go. Uh, people who don't know where the story is going to go often end up in a very difficult position. And I'll, I'll give you an example. And this is why some books are published when they ought not to be published. And, you know, you've read books that should not be published. All your listeners have read books that should not be published. I have read books that should not be published. Well, I'll tell you how that happens. Let's say you come up with a brilliant idea for an opening chapter. And we call those set pieces, as in movie set pieces. And it could be like a car chase, something that just grabs your attention right away. And it doesn't need to be action. It could be an emotional scene, like um, a husband and wife arguing, or a, a, a child, a teenager saying to the, the parents, I'm leaving home. I can't, I can't take staying here anymore. And it's very tense. And, and, and the author envisions this chapter from start to finish. It, 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 it blew, blossoms fully formed in their imagination. And they're not going to let this one go. They sit down and they start to write. And out comes that chapter in about two hours. And it's brilliant. And then they're not going to stop now. So they keep going. Chapter two, chapter three, chapter three. Well, we're not quite sure where we're going to go. Okay. Chapter four. Hmm. Let's think. They still, they write something down. Five, six, complete stop. Bang. Writer's block. Run into that brick wall. And they, for the life of them, cannot figure out what to do uh, from there on. After they have written maybe 150 pages of good, solid prose, just without a story. And, you know, prose without a story is pretty useless. So what the author then is looking at is the middle of the book. We sometimes call it the dreaded middle. And... Um, they, they can see nothing but cliches in there. You know, things like, well, the, the, the captain berates the detective, kind of renegade detective, and demands the badge and gun and, and puts them on leave. Seen that a thousand times. There's a car chase. The, uh, husband's, uh, the husband's wife, who's the detective, says, I can't concentrate on you and the case, so I'm leaving you. And he's in despair. And then you look at the, the, beyond that at the ending, and there's no ending. You know, this, you have no ending. And, you know, I'll, I'll go so far as to say that I think every book should have a, a type of surprise ending. In other words, there has to be that springboard that kind of boosts the reader into a different dimension. It doesn't have to be exciting, but it has to be emotionally fulfilling. And in my case, it's a surprise ending. Like, oh, man, I never saw that coming. And in fact, then I have several surprise endings because readers are really smart. They tend to get one or two of them, but I'm always going to try to have that third one that really gets them. You absolutely have to have to have that. But now this is the, the, the remember the author I'm talking about with the great set piece and he or she dreaded middle and beyond that complete emptiness, nothing. They don't know who the villain is. They don't know how, how the detective's going to solve the crime. And uh, you know it's like it'll be a Deus Ex Machina ending. You know, some some something from completely out of left field. Well, so you're confronted with. Two solutions if you're that author. One is, and you're going to get my take on it, the morally courageous thing and throw it all out, every single word. Because if you wrote a, you know, a good set piece beginning for a, a bad book, think of the great set piece beginning you can write for a, a good book. So that's the morally courageous thing. The other thing is the morally, morally dishonest thing. And that is to uh, fill in that cliche ridden middle and the deus ex machina ending and put it out for your readers. And that's a sin. You can't do that. You can't. We 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 owe readers everything, and we cannot give them anything less than the uh, the best. Now, I have stumbled. I have written books that just haven't done well at all. 
but not for want of trying. You know, sometimes you misread uh, the audience. Sometimes you take a chance. Who knows? But, uh, you know, I, I certainly try. And uh, so you, you kind of write yourself into a corner that way. But imagine if you had that great set piece beginning and you didn't sit down and start to write. You wrote it on a post-it note that said, great set piece beginning. Put an exclamation mark on it if you want. Stick it in the upper or on a little dyslexia, upper left-hand corner of your, your you know, work board, your bulletin board. And then take more post-it notes and start to figure out where the book is going to go and outline it. And you know what? You're going to realize after a week, oh, there's no middle. There's no ending. Okay. You wad up those post-it notes, throw them out. You've wasted, what, a dime's worth of post-it notes, five cents worth, and a week of your time. But you have not put yourself in this bind of, um, uh, you know, wasting, either wasting time or uh, doing something dis, uh, intellectually dishonest for your fans. So why not outline? The book has to have structure at some point. All these, all these books, especially commercial fiction, is about structure. You know, the point-counterpoint, the fugal approach, you know, the Bach I love classical music. The, the Beethoven, look at Beethoven, a classical symphony. Uh, there's an um, introduction of the theme. That's your prologue. The alternating adagio and andante um, or vivace movements. Those are your ups and downs of the book. And then the crescendo, the big exciting climactic scene. And then ideally, in my books, at least a coda, that soft reconciliation at the end, reconciliation of themes. You, you need that structure for it to work. It's just easier. If you do the outline, how do you maintain structure without structure turning into hackneyed and formulaic cliches? I imagine it is is something of a, a fine line. Well, there are two concepts there. If I can break your sentence apart, formulaic cliches. Now, formulaic is good. Again, the airplane built according to a formula. I write according to a formula. A Deaver book is this, and you're never going to get anything but this. Uh, a novel that takes place over two or three days at most, with a few exceptions. There are uh, many internal reversals. Now, a reversal for your, your your listeners are going to be familiar with them. They may just not know that term. That is when you come to chapter three and it's revealed suddenly that the, the good guy's assistant is actually working for the the terrorists. You know, that's a, that's a big reversal. Or we come to chapter 17 and the guy we think is the hero, bang, gets shot, shot in the head. Oh my God, never saw that coming. And the, the story carries on. And then there's the big surprise ending followed by a big, my multiple surprise endings. And then there's a hook of some kind. And the hook is the, the research, uh, the, the material that I've learned through research and I present in the book that I think the, the readers will find interesting. And I'll give you an example. Uh, my book, The Broken Window, a Lincoln Rhyme book, I wrote 15 years ago about data mining. Uh, and I was, it was about data mining before you know, we knew what data mining was, you know, certainly before the AI thing. Now, I did not write about artificial intelligence. To some extent, I did. You know, it wasn't Sam Altman's chat GPT, but I, 15 years ago, I was writing about it because it was a concern. The burning wire about the, the fragility of the power grid in America, it may be true in Australia as well, both as far as terrorists go and also economic and then simply uh, climatic, uh, uh, climatic issues. You know, a, a terrible flood could take uh, you know, a major city's power grid off out of commission for a long time. Uh, my book, The Stone Monkey, was about immigration, uh, undocumented immigration. So, you know, deal with those. Uh, the Watchmaker's Hand is both about uh, corruption in the construction world and about affordable housing, both problems in America. 
And, you know, this is somewhat universal. The books are sold throughout the uh, world. Now, that's a formula, and I'm not changing from that ever. What's it, when does it become cliched? Basically, the test is the, uh, the reader when they say, I've seen it. I've seen it before. You know, cliches are a cliche for a reason to some extent. You know, avoid this phrase like the plague. Well, it's a cliche, and they say you shouldn't do that, but there's something to be said that readers get. You know, the plague is something I want to avoid. Okay, got that. There's a certain sense to it. But when the, the reader says, oh, man, I saw this in a who knows what, a Lee Child book or a Harlan Coben book or, a, you know, a James Phelan book, to mention one of your, your great authors, uh, you know, then the reader thinks, oh, you know, uh, I'm just not going to keep reading. So you have to guard against that. You don't make it fresh. There's this joke in Hollywood, which, as in many, <laughs> often in Hollywood, is both a joke and a truism. And uh, the story is this, that when a producer is looking for a uh, product, and they call it products too, that is a book or a, a script to turn into a movie, they want something that has never been done before, is wildly original, and has been incredibly successful in the past. You know, we laugh at that, but it's true. In other words, the readers want something familiar. They want something familiar, but also something new that gets their juices flowing. I occasionally, rarely take a chance. And I had this idea, having seen Stephen King's, Stephen Sondheim's musical, Merrily We Roll Along, this is eight, nine years ago, again. And it put me in mind of mind of like Martin Amos's Times Arrow and certain other works that have gone backwards in time that start in the present. And then as the story progresses, we move back in time. I thought, could you write a thriller that way? Excuse me. The end result being, can I write a book that has a surprise beginning? And I thought, I'm going to try this. And that book became The October List, which I think, and I can't recall the reviewer. It was a UK reviewer. I think the Daily Standard. And the review went something like this, a work of pure genius and one which he must never, ever do again. I, I love that <laughs> because uh, it was true. And I, it was my second book that year. It was a short book. Did I have my readers in mind? I held their hand every page of the way. I had charts and notes and timestamps. Some people said the best thing I've ever written. They absolutely love it. And some have said they couldn't get through it. Uh, for which I apologize, but I, I certainly tried to do something uh, a bit different. At the same time, that year, I gave them a book according to the Deaver formula. But but even that, even the October list uh, took place over three days. It had lots of internal reversals. They just went backwards. So we didn't know they were reversals until we got to the next chapter. And then we got to chapter three and saw that everything we'd read up until then, and I was very careful to play fair about it, was entirely different. All the characters had different roles. Chapter two turned chapter three on its head. Chapter one, everything was entirely different. And uh, I had so much fun mm -hmm. writing it. And the people who read it are, are huge fans. And oddly, just before I jumped on our call here, I got an email from a, uh, a film studio that had just finished a major feature film with uh, two major stars. Of course, can't mention anything here, but um, they want to option the October list. You mentioned that that was one of two books that you wrote that year. You are known as being prolific. You will generally pump out a couple of books a year as well as several short stories. So I think you're particularly well qualified to answer this question. The biggest barrier for most people is the fear of the blank page and getting started. How do you personally address the fear of the blank page? Outline. 
outline. It's very simple. You know, let's be honest. Not everybody is meant to be a writer. That's, that's all there is to it. I look forward to the act of writing. I enjoy it. I always have. I started writing when I was 12 years old, and I, I knew I was not, there were no prodigy writers even then. I knew I had to wait 15, 20 years or so to write. So I did other things that kind of, that were adjuncts to writing. I mean, I, I wrote as a journalist. I wrote a lot as a lawyer. I wrote more as a lawyer than I did as a journalist, actually. But, um, you know, I knew that would take a little, uh, a little, little while. In my course, I have my students come up to me. And these, by the way, are not, I'm not a tenured professor. These are courses in commercial writing. I teach in conjunction with writers' conferences, with libraries, with uh, literacy groups and things like that. And anyway, I have students who come up to me and say, I want to write, but I, I, I just can't find the time. Do you have any suggestions? And I say, well, you know, all you have to do is find an hour a day, hour every few days. You know, at the end of a, a year, you will have put together, you can write a page in a few hours. And But, you know, I would say be sure to outline first so you know where you're going. And I know, would never tell them this, of course, but they're not going to be writers. They're, they're just not going to be writers. They want to... They want to have written a book. They want to be J.K. Rowling now. They want to be Michael Connelly now. And, uh, you know, with the books under their, under their belt. And they struggle with writing. The ones who I know are going to be writers, are the, they're few and far between, who come to me and say, uh, well, uh, you know, Jeff, I've got kind of a problem at home. I missed the kids' soccer practice the other day. I, I cut class because I had to, I had to work, on my, work on my book. They're going to be the writers. You know, I mean, that's who I was, and I know that for a fact. So uh, when it comes to confronting the blank page, I'll give some advice because I'm sure some – I certainly don't want to discourage writers. They're probably among your audience, and I'm sure given your the nature, given yourself and the nature of your, your program, uh, you have a lot of uh, creative people out there. But I'd say this, just some writerly advice. Write in the genre that you have read, that you're passionate about. Don't think that, okay, boys, boy zombies – in an English boarding school are going to make me a million dollars. Just forget that. Write what you enjoy reading. If you like cozies, write cozies. If you like uh, fantasy, dystopian fantasy, write that. So write in the genre you're accustomed to and you like, you're, you're passionate about. Plan out what you're going to write ahead of time. And don't do my outlines by any means. That will discourage you. I, I happen to like it. Mine are, mine are 100 pages long. You need two or three pages. That's all. Joyce Carol Oates said, you can't write your first sentence until you know what the last sentence is. That's all you really need. Do more than that. You know, fill it fill it in. Say, okay, there'll be a killing here. We need a murder here. Uh, you know what? No, that's this is BS. No, wad it up and throw it out. Start over again. So anyway, do your outline. Then write your draft in any order you want. You know, the, the outline is very easy because it's, it's hard to, you come to chapter six and if you don't know what's next, you got to figure out, oh my God, what comes next? And then you may go to write chapter seven and think, well, this is okay, but then I have to go back and rewrite chapter three. No, no, no. You've got your outline. You don't have to worry about that. And you can write the ending at the beginning, the beginning at the ending. So you've got your outline, you write the book, and then rewrite. Rewrite a lot. And don't think it's finished ever, frankly. I'm convinced my publisher doesn't want to tell me when the book is going to be printed because I'll go to the printing plant and make changes on the press. I'm being a little facetious there because <laughs> nowadays it's all electronic and you can't do that. Uh, I mean, even the printing press, they don't let you into the room where the, these plates are being made. So anyway, rewrite, rewrite, and rewrite. 
and then just ignore criticism. It, it just doesn't exist. Keep sending it out and wait. In other words, take your time in all things uh, about the process. Take your time in writing the book and take your time in, in, in selling the book. I've seen authors who are talented, but they are impatient, too impatient. I still get rejected. I, I do short stories. I do eight, eight or nine short stories a year. Some on spec and they get rejected. I dust them off. I, I change mm. them. I listen to the criticism and I, I change it and they get published. It's uh, it's it's a business, you know, it's the nature of the business. Patience and handling rejection is a recurring theme from the authors that I speak to. I spoke to Jeffrey Archer a few months ago. I think he uh-huh. said that his first novel was rejected 17 times before, I think it's not a penny more, not a penny less, rejected 17 times before before an agent finally or a publisher took, took him up on it. You mentioned short stories and, and like Archer, you're one of the relatively few authors, I would say, who straddles both short stories and novels, which I think is quite a rare skill. What appeals to you about short stories specifically? Uh, they are very different. You're absolutely right. And a short story is not a short novel. And a novel is not a long short story. Entirely different genres. And the difference for me is this. Uh, a novel involves what I described before, that um, uh, paragraph that you uh, you were following along about the creating the emotional engagement with characters living and real, uh, as if they were real, living and breathing as if they were real. And... Um, you know, tugging on the emotions of the readers throughout the story, uh, throughout the novel. That's not a short story. Short story exists for one thing and one thing only, and that is the sniper bullet of surprise. And uh, it should be, it should elicit a gasp at the end. Uh, or again, I mean, I've written a couple that are humorous, so like a guffaw, you know, huge laugh, but it's a, a joke, but more likely the big surprise. And I'll give you an example, if I may. Here's a situation, a story I wrote some years ago. A girl in high school is plagued by a a stalker. And this young man, also a high school student, is clearly troubled and he fancies himself a soldier. And I don't know if you had in Australia, you probably did these little plastic, well, probably not of your era, but my era, they had these little plastic post-World War II, plastic soldiers uh, green soldiers, and you buy them by the bag, and the kids would set up little battlefields and so forth. Well, one was a kneeling kneeling soldier, and he's holding his gun, and he was kneeling. Well, he affected that that pose as he uh, stalked her, and he he kneel outside her gym, uh, you know, gymnasium, and uh, kneel outside her room, and in a public area, her room at home, in a public area where he could not be uh, kicked off. But clearly, he was. Uh, you know, causing uh, consternation to her and to her family. Her father in particular, who was uh, extremely protective, and he said, no, honey, I'm sorry, you can't you can't go to the mall with your friends. And she said, but daddy, I want, he hasn't hurt me. He said, it's only a matter of time until he does something. She said, but but the prom, I want to go to the big prom, the big, big after, after uh, school year dance. And he said, oh, well, you certainly can't go to that. And she's very upset by that. And then, um, a couple, a few things happen in the story, and then she comes crying to her father and says, "Daddy, Daddy, he was in my room. He opened up my dresser. He looked at my clothes. The window was open." Father goes absolutely ballistic. Cut to the scene where the police find the young man's body. He's been bludgeoned to death, and then it's it's hidden, but not very well. The father's golf club, and uh, you know he's arrested, tried for murder, and convicted, but he's nonetheless is a hero because. 
people say he stood up for his daughter. He saved her. It's a shame he's got to do the time. Maybe it'll be out on early parole, but he's still got to serve his 10 or 15 years. And uh, so the final scene of the story is this. The girl is now dressed up in her prom dress. She has the corsage on and her mother comes to the door and says, honey, um, you know, your, your um, golf instructor just called and said, do you want to have another lesson on, on Monday? And she says, no, no, I've learned everything I need to know about golf. Thank you. And of course, we realize she had taken her dad's club, beat the kid to death herself because she wanted to go to the prom. And, and he's, he's doing time for it. Now, do we like anybody in that story? No, not really. But it doesn't matter because we got this uh, chill of surprise. Now, had that been a novel, uh, that wouldn't have worked because, you know, mm -hmm. the, the girl, oh, little, you know, 17-year-old Tammy, oh, no, how could she possibly do this? And the kid, we'd have to have his psychiatrists involved and so forth. And then dad would be, you know, confronting these. He'd seen a John Wayne movie once too often and wants to go get the bad guy, but he's conflicted about it. But uh, so I, as I say, short stories, a sniper bullet. I love writing them. And in fact, I'm doing um, a series with um, Amazon now. I publish with traditional publishers, Harper, uh, Harper UK, of course, published in Australia, but I also do Amazon original stories uh, that are available worldwide, I guess. Uh, well, I'm sure they have worldwide rights. And those are... Um, I do about five or six of those a year, and um, I think uh, one of those, uh, a series of those, uh, may be not that the writer's strike is over. I'm hoping it will be a uh, a Prime Video streaming show. So we'll see about that. But you know, turning a short story into a streaming uh, show works for me because it's a it's multiple stories, but it's the big surprise twist. Surprise twist. You mentioned streaming there. It it provides a segue to will be my final question. We live in an age now where there has been an explosion in the popularity of true crime podcasts, Netflix-style crime documentaries and series. At the same time, it feels like the attention span of young people is getting shorter and shorter. Are you concerned about not just the future of crime fiction, the genre that you are best associated with, but are you concerned about the future of reading more generally? Uh, in answer to the first question, no, crime is perennial. What's Hamlet but Reservoir Dogs, where the characters are wearing tights, you know, and using uh, rapiers instead of uh, instead of guns? So, so crime, well, Greek drama for that matter, you know, crime crime has always been crime has been with us, and the uh, proliferation of crime podcasts, for instance, I think the number one. Uh, I listen to a lot of news podcasts and history podcasts, but I think true crime podcasts are the most popular. Uh, so no, uh, crime will remain popular. However, you bring up a very good point, And that is that the uh, both attention span and the proliferation of, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll put it politely rear end in the in the uh, armchair seat with a remote control is uh, becoming a much more prevalent form of entertainment. And why not? It's easier than reading a book. But a book still is the most emotionally engaging experience, uh, I, I say uh, uh, artistic or cultural experience, of any creative experience, of any. Why? Because the readers participate with the author. I, I read uh, Lord of the Rings uh, when I was uh, several times, so uh, probably 10 or 11 when I read it the first time. And uh, I still picture that. I don't picture Peter Jackson's imagery. It was very accurate. 
you know, it, it was he, he was he, he hewed to the uh, both the spirit and the descriptive elements of the book. But that doesn't matter. I can still picture Bilbo and Frodo and Gandalf and Aragorn and the uh, uh, Aragorn and the other characters, Galadriel, in my mind from back then. And I could hear I could hear their voices. I could smell it. And that's what a book does. And, you know, I'm convinced that uh, emotional experience is valid and good and superior to other forms of, let's say, storytelling entertainment. And, you know, okay, the plastic arts are the plastic arts, but let's be honest. You know, you go to the art museum. All right, maybe after 25 minutes, aren't you really thinking about where you're going out for drinks and dinner afterwards? You know, okay, maybe not. I know they're true aficionados of the plastic arts, but nonetheless, but a book, I, I think it should grab you. You know, it should, it should grab you and stay with you long after you've closed the, uh, the final pages. And so accordingly, what I have done is, uh, you know, you can complain that it's not what it used to be, or you can try to do something about it. So what I have done for the last few books, uh, notably the Coulter Shaw books, The Never Game, Goodbye Man, Final Twist, Hunting Time, uh, which will be uh, Tracker. This, you know, those are the characters who become Tracker, our CBS TV show. What I've tried to do in those books and The Watchmaker's Hand, my most recent Lincoln Rhyme book, is adopt what I call a streaming style. I want readers to, who may not be familiar with my books or books in general to maybe listen to this and pick up the book and read it and see, you know what? This is not dissimilar from you know, Breaking Bad or The Queen's Gambit. Of course, it's a crime book. And why is that? Well, because my books are shorter now. They used to be 130,000 words. Now they're 95 to 100,000 words. Uh, the chapters are shorter. I used to have 30 chapters. Now I've got 80, 80 chapters. Uh, the uh, paragraphs are shorter, much less introspection, uh, much more dialogue. They really are like scripts in a way. Uh, I can't say there's more action. There's just as much drama because I believe that the soap opera elements of a story are as uh, valid and exciting as the car chases. Frankly, even more exciting because ideally none of your listeners have ever come face to face with a serial killer, but they've all come face to face with a difficult mother or father or spouse or partner or child. And that's why I want those, uh, those dramas to resonate. And so um, at the end of the book, which I hope they will read in a single reading, that's what I'm aiming for, maybe two days at most, they'll say, you know what? These books, these books, they're cool things. I like them. I'm going to find something else. Jeff, it's uh, such a privilege for me to be able to speak to people who are masters of their craft and you are undoubtedly a master of yours. Congratulations on this most recent book, more generally on a superb career in crime fiction. Uh, I'd strongly recommend to everyone listening to go out, get all 16 of the Lincoln Rhymes books and stuff them in the Christmas stockings. Uh, you will not be disappointed. Jeff, thank you very much for coming on Australiana. Oh, well, thank you so much. A pleasure talking to you. I could go on for another hour, but I guess we have to end it somewhere, don't we? We'll wait till the next book comes out. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get your first month absolutely free.